Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Hello, and welcome to our podcast on advanced diabetes technology. We'd like to thank the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists for the opportunity to speak on this topic today. I'm Georgia Davis, and I'm an adult endocrinologist at Emory University in Atlanta. And we are here today with Dr. Rayhan Lau, who is an engineer, adult, and pediatric endocrinologist and diabetes technology researcher at Stanford University. Welcome, Dr. Lau. Thank you so much, Georgia, and thank you to ACE for letting us record this podcast here. Very exciting. As we approach the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin, advances in diabetes management continue to progress at this incredible rate, especially over the past 20 years. We see some of the most recent advances surrounding the integration of continuous glucose monitors and insulin pumps and the development of automated insulin delivery, or ambitiously referred to as artificial pancreas technology. For this segment on advanced diabetes technology, I think we'll talk a little bit about the recent expansion of this technology and how it's impacting diabetes management for providers. Rayhan, thank you very much for being here today. And I'd like to start by asking if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your path to becoming an endocrinologist. No problem, Georgia. And it's a little bit of a long winding story here. So I'll start from the beginning. So when I was growing up, I loved computers. I always wanted to be an electrical engineer and computer scientist. Just so happens that about 30 years back, I got type 1 diabetes as well. I continued down this trajectory towards becoming an engineer. I went to UC Berkeley, studied electrical engineering, computer science, and I was starting to work in that field when my two younger siblings also developed type 1 diabetes. It was at that stage that I decided, well, you know what, I want to go out there and help all my brothers and sisters who also have diabetes. So I shifted career paths. I had to take a few additional classes and then move into medicine. I went to medical school at UC Davis. And through the process, I was trying to decide, well, do I want to see kids or do I want to see adults with diabetes? And I learned that there was this thing called internal medicine and pediatrics where you could do a dual residency. And I said, wouldn't it be great if I could do endocrine on both sides? So I did MedPeds residency over at LA County Hospital. We serve the underserved population over there. And then when it came time to go to fellowship, I really wanted to hearken back to the engineering that I had done in my younger days. And so I went to Stanford, which was a hotbed for diabetes technology research. And I worked under my mentor and dear friend, Dr. Bruce Buckingham. And I've been doing diabetes research there for the last couple of years in diabetes technology specifically. And I also run a transition clinic for the 16 to 26 year olds moving from the pediatric to adult world. That's really wonderful. A lot of important work, a lot of technology. From the perspective of a person with diabetes, can you provide a little insight into some of your personal experiences during this 
sort of technological evolution here that's been going on with all of the diabetes tech recently? That's a great, great question. Um, when I think back to your story of insulin being developed about 100 years back, if any of the endocrinologists out there want a good joke for their fellows, ask them where Hagedorn got the protamine from. That's a story unto itself. But there were a lot of developments by the time I was diagnosed. You know, I'm just pre-DCCT a little bit. And at that time, you know, we had reflectance meters that used color change in light to sort of figure out what our glucoses was. It was a big drop of blood. About 45 seconds later, you got what the value was. Um, soon after, we started to get biosensors. So instead of using light and optics, you used electrical signals generated by enzymes to figure out what the glucose values were. And in addition to that, we were seeing smaller blood requirements needed in the meters. The time that it took got reduced dramatically. So you weren't waiting on beaded breath to figure out what the glucose was. Much more practical. Oh yes, absolutely. And it was what feels like a fast transition, but really this was changes that were occurring over multiple years. The other really great thing was when I started out, syringes were like 28 gauge and they did irritate me when I was a little younger and a little smaller than I am now. I would say that we have now reached this point where the gauge of the needles is so thin that if we made them any thinner, they either wouldn't make it through the vial of insulin or they would bend when you insert them in the skin. So we have really come a long way there as well. And lancets have become slightly smaller, although that still tends to be the most uncomfortable thing about diabetes management. So I was one of the early adopters of insulin pump therapy. Very few clinics at that time were doing multiple daily injections. A lot of us were on two shots a day of regular and NPH. So I had wanted to move towards pump therapy for sort of a maybe more physiologic delivery and not always having to plan my lunch out ahead of time. This was definitely early in the phase of pump development. We didn't even have the disconnects on the infusion sets, so they would provide shower bags to keep the uh, pump from getting wet when you were in the shower. And gradually over time, the infusion sets became a little more usable. You could separate from them, get into the shower. And in the late 90s, we started to see new insulin formulations, and more and more people were starting to get on these multiple daily injections. So we suddenly went from two injections a day to like four injections per day. That's when I really started to see a lot of the community wearing more devices. So a lot of people at that time could handle two shots a day, but four seemed like too much. So I was seeing more people around me wearing pumps and I was like, hey, we match, you know, we're kindred spirits here. So, you know, that's when I really started to see a lot more pumps being out there. And then more recently, in the last 20 years or so, commercial continuous glucose monitors have become all the craze. And with those, you are reaching this point today where you put one of these on and you get data streaming to the phone you already carry in your pocket anyway. 
and you don't have to use one of these glucometers that I had been carrying around for the last 20 some years. So it's really made a huge quality of life usability difference. And now I see more people than ever who are wearing CGM devices, whether they're on MDI, whether they're on pumps. And it's really been great to be able to meet people out there who have diabetes and are really keeping track of what's happening with their blood sugars. Yeah, it's sort of an integration, I think, we don't always think about, but carrying different devices and how sort of also streamlining that is very helpful. I think the desire to recreate physiologic insulin secretion or pancreatic function has been around for some time to achieve this perfect glycemic control. In your opinion, what are some of the forces that have sort of contributed to the advancement of this integration of continuous glucose monitoring and some pump therapy towards automated insulin delivery? So that's a really great question. Certainly lots of things over the years have been pushing us in that direction. It's not a new idea of using a continuous glucose signal to power insulin delivery. In fact, the descriptions go back at least to before even the 60s, the theory behind this. I think Initially, in order to make this come to bear, and you have to realize that, okay, we want reasonable glucose control. And that is not necessarily an intuitive feeling. Certainly, prior to the DCCT, there was still not a really great evidence base that higher blood sugars could potentially lead to microvascular outcomes. So we did need the data for that. Now, was everybody practicing as if all I wanted to do was prevent low blood sugars? Certainly not. There were many people who had this realization that probably keeping the glucose in as physiologic a range as possible was beneficial. But also people were having significant low blood sugars and those you could acutely see deteriorations in people's functioning. So for a while, there were folks who just wanted to avoid hypos and it was okay. They would say run them high. But once we got the DCCT data, we really were able to say, well, this is something that we can't allow to continue because you will have some microvascular complications and later large vessel disease complications from uh, long-term hyperglycemia. So first, you need the impetus and the drive to say we need to make a change. Then you need the technology, and that's the bit that has been getting more and more close to a solution in the last 20, 30 years or so. So the commercialization of insulin pumps that came along first. If you go back and you ever Google image search the first insulin pump, you'll see the guy wearing the backpack. It's important to remember that that backpack actually had an auto analyzer attached to it, which was a form of CGM using venous blood. It had delivery of insulin and glucagon intravenously. So in many ways, that first picture of the pump, the backpack, is more advanced than what we have today in many ways. But all that being said, the technology was just not quite there for major commercial use. So we first had perfection of the continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion. 
And CGM technology has been an advent of the last few decades. And so we are now at a place where we have accurate enough CGM that we can use it to drive insulin delivery. And it's one of these things where it has taken several generations to achieve more accuracy, more portability, and this interoperability between devices, right? Because we need one to be able to talk to the other to make this all work. And initially, when Medtronic had been commercializing the 670, everything was housed under one group. And it is important to understand that not every company will have the financial ability and the technology to build an entire system. So this is where a lot of work has been going on, both in the open source community and in the commercial community. And I bring up the open source community because it is very important to realize that the first sort of closed loop system that was not commercial but used off-the-shelf parts and was not in sort of a research venue was OpenAPS. And the way that these systems were originally developed is Jerome Radcliffe at a Black Hat security conference in 2011 was interested in the security behind medical devices. And he also had diabetes. And so one of the questions for him was, could he hack his pump? And as it turned out, he didn't actually need to do any hacking at all. The CareLink software that allowed the devices to communicate with a stick and the remote commands that were a feature back in those days were totally open. In other words, you could open up the files that contained the code that allowed you to send commands to these devices, and you could actually see exactly how they operated and worked. So there was no obfuscation by the company. There was no security that prevented one from sending remote commands to these devices. So in fact, he demonstrated this at a conference. And so now the community had an ability to send arbitrary commands to commercial pumps. So that's the first piece. And the second piece is continuous glucose monitoring. So several years later, as continuous glucose monitoring technology improved, Dana and Scott with the OpenAPS project started to work on code to provide automated insulin delivery. And that's the third piece of the equation, which is the algorithm to do the command of the pump based on the CGM data. And at the time that the 670G was approved, there were more people hours uh, data from the OpenAPS community than what was submitted to the FDA for the 670G. I think that the work done in the open source space has certainly been a powerful motivator for a lot of folks. We get a lot of very interesting feature ads in this open source software. And this may be having an influence on industry and regulators. One of the very nice things the FDA has laid out is these interoperability criteria so that someone can take an ICGM, which is an interoperable CGM, piece it together 
with an ACE pump, an alternate controller-enabled pump, and then use an IAGC algorithm to link all those pieces together. And that's been a useful feature that will hopefully enable more plug-and-play use of different devices in the future. And it's sort of been this sentiment that we know that the creation of this technology has the potential to help many, many people with diabetes for their glycemic control. And like you mentioned, achieving the targets in terms of their glycemic control without that risk of hypoglycemia occurring. And that's very meaningful. And so whatever the forces are, including open source to move that forward have been very powerful. And we've seen that, um, like you said, in the open source and in the commercial side moving forward. So with so much technology emerging, can you provide just a really brief overview of the automated insulin delivery systems that we have available? Yeah, so this is a great question. And one of the things is there are a lot of systems worldwide, and the EU has done a very good job, even without these intraoperability regulatory statements, in approving a number of these systems. So in the US, we have the 670G and Control IQ. In Europe, we are going to have the 780G, Control IQ, Diaboloop, the Havorka system. So they they have a number of additional systems that are on the cusp of usage. Now, one of the things I like to do is I actually like to think about a little more deeply how do these systems work. And it is important to realize that the algorithms behind this should not be kept in some black box. One of the fundamental principles of medical ethics is that we need to be able to discuss the risks and benefits of anything we prescribe. If a company says that this is my intellectual property and I'm not going to describe fully how something works, then I can't have an informed discussion of risks and benefits. I cannot practice the medical ethical principle of autonomy for my patients. And it makes it so that you might not be able to get all the pieces you need to make an automated insulin delivery system if somebody doesn't have access to all the pieces. So that violates the ethical principle of justice. So it is super important that people understand the way these things function and not just what is the target glucose of the system and other more mundane features of that system. So in terms of how they work, we have systems which are more based on PID control. What that means is basically that you set a target glucose and however much you are deviating away from that target glucose based on the CGM, the system will take that and using a proportionate term, an integral term, and a derivative term, they will figure out how much insulin you need. And there's a lot of questions about exactly how do you choose how much P-term, how much I-term, how much D-term, how frequently do you update those multipliers, but that's the basics of PID. Then there's fuzzy logic where we say that 
in essence, an expert will say, under the following criteria, I want to do this to insulin. And those criteria might be something simple like a blood sugar that is high and rising or low and falling. They may be something like the rate of the rate of change, but whatever rules it is, it's a rule-based system. And finally, modeling and predictive control are systems which try to predict the future using what they know about insulin, glucose, carbohydrates, and then altering insulin delivery so that the ultimate glucose ends up falling within the target reference range that is desired. So very complex, but all with the same goal essentially in mind, but none working the exact same way. So a lot of potential differences that providers will need to be aware of when they're working with a system so they can ensure patient safety. You got it. As these new technologies become available, I know that, like you mentioned, there's many that are on the cusp of becoming available here. Can you speak a little bit about device accessibility and how we've seen this change over the past few years? This is the heartbreaking part of diabetes technology. I can tell you stories from LA County of young people who would come to me with tears in their eye and ask, well, Dr. Lal, I know you have this system. Why can't I get it? And these were folks who were undocumented. And unfortunately, our country is not very kind to undocumented folks. So this is a situation that needs to change and access to technology is a hugely important thing, perhaps more important than the technology itself. If we do not have equity in these things, then we will not be able to provide the same level of care to everyone with diabetes. And I really do think that the government insurers have been doing a better and better job moving us to equal access, but we really need to continue all our advocacy to make sure everyone who is on Medi-Cal, Medicaid, whatever your system might be, all have access to CGMs, all have access to pumps. Not everyone will use it, but we want to make sure everyone has an equal chance. Well, this is definitely a very exciting time in the realm of diabetes technology. And I want to really thank you, Dr. Lal, for your time and also thank the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists for this opportunity to sit down and, and talk a little bit about these technologies that are coming quickly here, into, especially into the U.S. market for our providers. It's a very nice talk. And thank you again. And we'll see everybody later. Thank you, Georgia. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.